Numbers 13. We're going to go ahead and start in uh, verse 1, and we're going to be reading some scripture. Uh, So follow along with me if you would. Numbers 13 and verse 1. And it said, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. Of every tribe of their fathers shall ye send a man, every one a ruler among them. And Moses, by the commandment of the Lord, sent them from the wilderness of Paran. All those men were heads of the children of Israel. Now, we're going to skip down past the genealogy here. I want you to pick up back in verse uh, 17, if you would. And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said unto them, Get ye up out, of the, uh, out this way southward and go up into the mountains and see the land, what it is, and the people that dwelleth therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad. And what cities they be that they dwell in, whether in in tents or in strongholds. And what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether there be wood therein or not. And be of good courage and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was uh, the time of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and searched the land from the wilderness of Zin unto Rehob as men come to Hamath. And they ascended by the south and came unto Hebron, where Ahimon, Shishai, and Talmai, the children of Anak, were. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came unto the brook of Eshkel and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they bare it between two upon a staff. And they brought up of the, of the pomegranates and of the figs. The place was called the brook of Eshko because of the cluster of grapes which the children of Israel cut down from thence. And they returned from the searching of the land after forty days. And they went and came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Param to Kadesh. And they brought back word unto them and unto the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, we came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong and dwell in, that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the, the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea, by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land, which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land uh, through which we have gone to search It is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that uh, we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants of the sons of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. You know, this is a... uh, an interesting passage, I guess. And it, it, it's a passage that I have read many, many times, and I'm sure most of you have. 
But I can't help, every time that I read through this passage, I always ask myself the same question. And for obvious reasons, I decided I wanted to use that question to kind of frame a title for this message. And that question is, what's holding you back? What's holding you back? You know, for your sake, I, I wish that I could deliver a message like pastor, but uh, I was not given that gift. But I hope that uh, you're, you're willing to just kind of bear with me for a while. And I, I want to try to make uh, some application from this particular passage of Scripture. And hopefully it will challenge us to examine ourselves as we, uh, as we read through this. So let's go ahead, before we go any further, I want to go ahead and open in prayer, if you don't mind. Dear God, we thank you again for the opportunity to be here, Lord. Uh, we thank you for this building that you provided for us. And, Lord, I thank you for the people who come out. And, uh, Lord, just pray that you would uh, speak to hearts. Lord, I pray that you would use me uh, in some way. Uh, you know, I don't have the ability to do this naturally. Uh, but, Lord, I hope that you would use me uh, to speak to the people through your word. And, Lord, we just uh, pray for Pastor as uh, he is in Egypt. Lord, use him and uh, help him to uh, be a blessing to people there. And, Lord, help him to... Teach the men that will reach people in that region, Lord. We also pray for our teenagers as they're traveling and uh, be with them and, and with the workers that have gone with them. I pray that you would uh, just give them open hearts and minds uh, as they're there, that they would take in the word that they're hearing and, uh, Lord, apply it to their lives. And, Lord, we'll ask all this in your name. Amen. So, numbers. Um, it's interesting. Numbers... Uh, the Hebrew word for the book of Numbers is bimidbar. bimidbar. I don't speak Hebrew. It's all Greek to me, right? So bimidbar. And literally what that means is in the desert or in the wilderness. And uh, I, I say that's interesting because that's exactly, that is the setting not just for this passage, not this passage, this chapter that we're reading. It's actually the setting for the entire book of Numbers. And I know that this sounds like a, a simple explanation, but we call it the book of Numbers simply because uh, God, on numerous occasions throughout the book, he, he wanted to take the time to have Moses uh, kind of count or, or number the people. And that's where we get the name of the book of Numbers. He would number them by their tribe. And we see that in various locations and chapters throughout the uh, uh, throughout the book, and uh, I'm sure that the the events of this book, you know, we've just kind of read through, uh, you know, the the majority of this particular chapter. But I'm sure the events of this chapter and this passage are somewhat familiar to most of us, and it probably doesn't really require any sort of an introduction. But if you allow me, I want to kind of try my best, I guess, to paint a picture of the events that led up to this particular moment that we just read about. So. As we just read, the children of Israel, they are getting ready to survey or spy out the land that God had promised to them. And, uh, you know, I mean, again, that, that, that's a key part right there. God had already promised them this land. The promise was part of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And that was centuries before this time that we just read about. In between the time from Abraham to this point. The Bible says in the book of Exodus that the children of Israel, that they spent 430 years in the land of Egypt. 
That's a long time. 430 years in Egypt. And they were in bondage there. They were, they were basically slaves to the people of Egypt. And uh, obviously at this point, you know, God had already used Moses to lead them, uh, you know, to, to, to take them out of the uh, land of Egypt. And at this moment, they find themselves literally standing on the threshold of claiming uh, that promised land that God had mentioned to Abraham way back when. But collectively, the congregation at this point, they decided, ultimately, they decided not to take that next step. And as we read the passage here in Numbers 13, we see that the the action of the people, or, or lack of action in this particular case, I guess you could say, we see that that, we see that, that uh, uh, wasn't really based on any one man, but we do see that uh, the attitude of the people were heavily swayed by the opinions of just a few. And if you take the time to study uh, the action and the attitudes of the people uh, of Israel leading up to this point and during this moment, uh, you can see that there were really a few things that were holding them back from claiming God's promise for themselves and for their lives and for their families. And that's what I want to try to focus on today. I want to try to identify some of these obstacles and in the process, again, see if we can make an application to our own lives as well. And we're going to ask that question, what's holding you back? The first thing that I want you to notice was holding them back was their complacency. Was their complacency. Uh, keep your place in Numbers 13. I want you to go ahead and turn to uh, Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. I want to take the time to make sure that we understand the origin of this promise uh, that, that we keep talking about, that we keep mentioning. And it was the promise, of course, that God had made with Abraham. Give you a little bit of a background before we start reading. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, it, it is the passage that, that outlines the covenant of the, that, that the covenant that God made with Abraham. And God starts in this chapter, he starts by telling Abraham that he's going to bless him and make of him a great nation. And he even goes as far as telling Abraham the specific land, the exact land that he is going to give to the children of Israel. I mean, he just, just literally points it out. So that, that's, that's kind of the background. So let's go ahead. I want, I want to look uh, in, in verse 7 is where he kind of points this out. But I want to go ahead and back up to, to verse 5 just so we can see a little bit of extra emphasis on this particular land. So Genesis twelve five, the Bible says, And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in the Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through, uh, uh, passed through the land under the place of Sikkim, and unto, unto the plain of Moreh. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord. Who appeared unto him. Now I want you to go ahead and t turn back to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. And let's look at verse 1 here again. That says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel. 
You see, we go back to the original promise to the covenant that God made with Abraham. He, he identified the land. He point blank showed it to him. And then here in this moment, we see that God again is reaffirming the fact that he had given them the land of Canaan, this land that they were to, to possess. And the problem is, is I mean, we, we just, I tell you, you can't make any mistake. It was God that brought them to that place. It was God who promised them that land. And all they had to do was to take that next step. Just take that next step of faith so that they could experience the fulfillment of God's promise in their life. And they allowed themselves to be held back. Now, you would think, I mean, you think about everything that's done, and many of you know the history of the time of the people when they were in Egypt and through the wilderness and all of that. You think that, with everything that they had witnessed, everything that they had been through, that they would have no trouble trusting God. That wasn't necessarily the case. I mean, I want you to think about that. I mean, this was the same God who struck, who, who they saw. They saw God strike fear in the hearts of their taskmasters by way of the plagues. They, they, this was the same God that he orchestrated their mass exodus from the land of Egypt. This was the same God who uh, parted the waters of the Red Sea so that they could walk over on dry ground. This was the same God that made those walls of water that he parted collapse onto Pharaoh's entire pursuing army and destroyed them. This was the same God who had sustained them through their entire journey through the wilderness. That's the God that they couldn't trust enough to take the next step. You know, as crazy as it sounds, I mean, in spite of everything that they had seen, everything they'd witnessed, everything they'd been through, I think they just simply forgot who God was. You know, I, I, don't, I don't mean that they didn't know of him. I mean that they didn't have the kind of relationship with him that they should have had. And they didn't see him as the almighty God that he had already proven himself to be. They had the wrong relationship with God. It, it, just, it just amazes me that these people have, had come through all of this, seen everything, and yet that was the attitude they had. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was their years in bondage that left them with some sort of a warped uh, sense of who God was. I don't know. Maybe it was the fact that God had brought them through so much. He had been so unbelievably good to them that maybe they were just desensitized to his goodness and maybe they were just left with a sense of entitlement and complacency. You ever been there in your Christian life? You know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe you're here today and that's exactly where you are. You've just become complacent. You're just desensitized to God's goodness. And I hope that's not the case, but the truth be told is I think that's really an epidemic in our churches today across the country. We have churches that are, are filled with people who are, have just become so complacent that they're just going through the motion of the Christian life. Can I tell you something? Christianity is not a motion. It's not an act or a performance. It's a simple case of follow the leader. Remember that game when we were kids? Follow the leader. It's a simple case of follow the leader. God leads. We follow. And no matter what path he chooses... Our job is to trust him enough 
to take that next step and follow him and knowing that whatever he decides or whatever he desires for us is for our good and for his glory. That, that's exactly how it works. You know, it's interesting. When I was going through discipleship with pastor, um, he asked me this often. He would, he would say, when we would meet, he would say, how's your walk with God? How's your walk with God? That's interesting. You know why he asked that question? He wanted to make sure that I wasn't becoming complacent in my relationship with God. So he would ask me. He would ask me that. You know, I, I, can, I can assure you, I, I'm, I'm just going to tell you a very simple truth. Your personal relationship with God is what will keep you conformed to his will. That, that's what was lacking in the lives of the children of Israel. If they had that type of relationship, if they saw him as the almighty God that he had proven himself to be, I think their outlook on how they approached that promised land would have been entirely different. That's not how they saw it. You know, as I, again, as I think about the children of Israel, I can't help but notice their propensity toward uh, complacency and discontentment. Uh, during these wilderness years. I mean, it's just, just the book of Numbers and it, everything. It's just riddled with all of their complaints and murmurings and, and everything. And, uh, you know, all of that kind of uh, came to a pinnacle, I guess you could say. If we were to jump ahead to Numbers chapter 14, you kind of see some of the response of the people of Israel to all of this that we've just read about. And everything kind of came to a pinnacle. We saw that their complacency got them to the point where after all of this, they said, maybe we should just return to the land of Egypt. You, you think about that? You know, even God, when, when he decided to appoint Moses to help lead these people out of, uh, out of Egypt, you know, God even saw how cruel the taskmasters, taskmasters were. It, it was unbelievable. Yet in this moment, these people decided that, you know what, I don't think it was that bad. You know, maybe, I don't know, maybe they had really bad memories, but uh, I, I just can't believe that that was what they came to. And, you know, the, their discontentment, their murmurings, it got so bad to the point where they were ready to stone Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. Don't think for a second that God was not aware he, that all of this, that, that it all just went unnoticed. That certainly wasn't the case. God doesn't take pleasure in complacent Christians or lukewarm Christians. What does he say? What did he say to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 and 16? He says, I know thy works, that thou art neither hot or cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. It's not good. You know, in this case, what it resulted in is God making the proclamation that all of those people who were the, doing the murmuring and the complaining and all of that, God declared that none of them that were the age 20 and over would actually enter into the promised land except for Caleb, Joshua's, their, their, family, their families, they would go. The Bible says Caleb had a different spirit. He followed God. But all of the others, they were going to die. They were going to perish in the wilderness. 
Church, we cannot afford, we can't afford to allow ourselves to be complacent or discontent. and to hold, We can't allow any of that to hold us back uh, from doing what it is that God has planned for our lives. We, we need to fuel that desire that we once had to know him and intentionally, every day, intentionally make the decision to have a relationship with God. That's exactly what's going to help us from being held back. The next thing I want you to notice that was holding back the children of Israel is influence. Influence. You know, the power of influence is often underestimated in today's, uh, in today's society. I mean, companies will literally pay untold millions of dollars uh, to be able to influence people uh, through various outlets. You know, they will use printed media, they'll use social media, they'll use television, movies, even music, just to, in order to influence other people as to what they should think or uh, what to say or, or what to do or to eat or even what to wear. It's, it's amazing to me what people will do in order to be socially accepted by their peers. Case in point, we had a, uh, a young lady who was working. Uh, we, we had a young lady who went on maternity leave here in, in our office. And uh, another lady we had uh, brought in as a temp to cover for her. And she, she it was an overlap there. So she started about a month before the young lady left and, you know, got to kind of know the position and all those good things. And uh, she was there for about two months after that while this young lady was on maternity leave. And I noticed one day that she came in and she was wearing glasses. And she had not wore glasses, you know, the whole time that she was there. And, and I, thought, well, I didn't know. I thought, well, maybe she was wearing contacts, all this. I don't know. So I asked her that morning. I said, did you get glasses? And she was like, well, kind of. She said, uh, she said, they're not real, but everybody's doing it. I just wear them to make me look more smarter. I said, excuse me, more smarter? I said, I think you need a stronger prescription is what you need. <laughs> I, I know that sounds mean, but I don't think she got it either. So, <laughs> But, uh, you know, that poor girl, you know. You know, she, all she was was doing the, she was following the influence of her friends when she ran into that buzzsaw that is Jeff Bradshaw. I don't know. So, who were these influential people that the Bible is talking about? Let's look again in Numbers chapter 13. Numbers 13, verse 1, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan, which I give unto the children of Israel, of every tribe of their fathers. Shall ye send a man, every one a ruler among them? And Moses, by the commandment of the Lord, sent them from the wilderness of Paran. All those men were heads of the children of Israel. You know, it's, it's really interesting here. Uh, we, we see exactly who these men were. And these men were, were leaders. I mean, according to chapter, uh, the, the, the Bible here, Numbers chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, we see that the men that were, were sent to spy out the land, you know, they, they, they were leaders. They didn't send uh, just pawns out to be sacrificed in the event that they were captured during their mission. They didn't send men that they deemed untrustworthy. 
They sent leaders from every tribe that represented every family within the nation of Israel. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because we see that 10 out of these, or 10 out of these 12 men, it, it seems like as soon as they came back from surveying the land, that immediately they began to influence everyone else around them. Not, not just, it wasn't a good influence. They negatively influenced all of these people that were around them. You know, I don't want to make excuses for people. That's just not my style. But if these people, if they were the leaders over the respective families and tribes of Israel, it's no wonder that the people, the congregation as a whole, that they were complacent. I mean, you know, it's been said, attitude reflects leadership. They must have had some awful leadership here, I'm telling you, because of what they did. You know, as you, as you read the Bible, I, I know it can be easy to kind of gloss over genealogies and numbers. You know, we, we did it today, uh, you know, talking about the, the 12 men that were chosen to go spy out the land. We, we kind of glossed over the genealogies, who they were, who their fathers were, and all of that. And, and I understand, you know, you, you're going through and you're doing your Bible reading and you kind of gloss over those things. But in this particular case, uh, it does help us to establish, uh, the, it gives us a sense of scale, if you will, as to how many people that these men were able to influence. You know, according to the count that was taken in Numbers chapter 1, the total number of men that were aged 20 and over was 603,550. And again, that's just the number of men over the age of 20 who were considered able to go into battle. Now, there may have been other men that would not have been considered able to go into battle. And certainly, once we factor in the female population and all of the children that were 20, ages 20 and under, you know, there's no doubt that there would have been well over a million people uh, that these people, that these 10 men would have had opportunity to influence. Think about that for just a second. Statistically speaking, each of these 10 men were able to influence over 100,000 people each, statistically speaking. They were able to influence over 100,000 people per man. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Andy, can you imagine having the opportunity to have influence over 100,000 people at one time. You know, I'm looking out here, and there's probably a couple hundred people, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm nervous just, just talking to you guys. I can't imagine having a million people in a congregation, you know, or you being responsible for over 100,000 of them and being able to influence them. You know, that's, that's 100,000 people. That's probably more people than I will have opportunity to personally interact with in a lifetime it's crazy but you know just like the children of israel we're constantly under some form of influence the question is what sort of influences or what sort of influence are we allowing ourselves to be subject to you know one author put it this way when he was asked about what or who influenced him he made this statement. He said, a lion is made up of every lamb that it digests. In other words, everything he had consumed had influenced him in some way. 
you know, all the books, all the things he had, everything he'd read, everything he'd heard, everything had influenced him in some way. So if, if you'll allow me to use his vernacular, what is it that you're digesting? What is it that you're taking in and allowing to influence you? What is it that you're taking into your heart? What is it that you're taking into your mind? What is it that you're allowing to pass through your eyes or into your ears? All of those things are things that can influence us. The question is, are those influences drawing us closer to God or are they pulling us further away from God? That's the question. You know, understand that the devil is a master at using the world to influence us. And, and while we may never allow ourselves to be pushed abruptly off course, oh, the devil, he is, he's just fantastic at this. He, he, he's so patient. He'll slowly nudge us off course with small, seemingly harmless things, but it takes us off course all the same. He's so patient about that. You know, it's, it's, it's been said that the devil will walk by your door a thousand times to find it open just once. That's how patient he is. He's willing to wait to find just the right time, just the right opportunity, just the right subject matter to influence you and to draw you off course. You know, we certainly need to be careful about what we allow to influence us, but it's also just as important that we're careful and how we influence others around us. Now, you might be thinking, me? Influence people? Well, you may never know. This, this is the truth. You may never know how many people your life has influenced, but that doesn't matter. That doesn't mean that they're not watching, that they're not listening, and they're not learning based on the things that you do or that you say or that you teach. You may never know that this side of heaven. You know... It's uh, it, it's really interesting. I mean, you might be thinking, I, I have no influence. Yes, you do. Everybody has some form of influence. You know, from our text, we know that ultimately these ten men, they they were they were successful in persuading the entire multitude of people uh, to you know in a negative way, and it was partly their influence that held them back held the children of Israel back from claiming the promise that God had on their lives. And uh, that's a scary thought. You know, as Christians, we need to be careful about what we allow to influence us. And also, we, we need to make sure that we're careful about how we influence people. We shouldn't let that deter us. We shouldn't let other influences, outside influences, we should never let that deter us from, again, making are taking that next step and making decisions that God wants us to make in our lives. The last thing that I want to point out to you that was an obstacle for the people of Israel, the children of Israel, oddly enough, it's, it's actually one of the obstacles that probably hold us as Christians back more times than not. The obstacle that was the last thing I saw that was holding them back was their fear. It was their fear. Go ahead and look uh, in Numbers 13, and uh, we're going to read just the last few verses, starting in verse number 30. And it says, And Caleb stilled the people. I'm going to pause right there. He, if he had to still, still them, they were obviously worked up. These other men that came in and gave the evil report, uh, they had instilled fear within these people. So the Bible says that Caleb had to still the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it. 
for we are well able to overcome it. And then we see the response from the other ten men. The Bible says in verse 31, it says, But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search, to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. You know, as we read through this particular passage in those last few verses there in Numbers 13, it seems apparent to me uh, that they, were, they, were, they allowed their fears to hold them back from claiming the promise that God had for them. You know, and I have to admit, fear is one of those natural obstacles. We, we all deal with fear in one way or another, and it affects us. It, it affects some of us in, in a different way than it might others. And uh, if I'm honest, it probably is the one obstacle that affects me probably more so than any of the others. Fear. You know, many of us deal with fear in various forms, and some of our fears, they, they may seem... Uh, completely irrational to other people around us. Uh, For instance, I have sharkophobia. I don't know that that's a word, but it sounds more clinical than saying I'm afraid of sharks, okay? And I have a friend who, he is, he's, he's very adventurous. He lives down in Florida. I've known him for years and years. And he knows that this kind of stuff bothers me, but He's the kind of guy, he's that guy that does these cage dives. <laughs> and he, he'll, he'll even do open water dives with sharks. I think he's nuts. I've told him so. I think he's nuts. You know, he, he, he knows this bothers me. So he sent me an article recently. I, this is probably about a month and a half ago. He sent me an article and in the article, you know, what it was saying was, is that you're more likely to win the lottery than you are to be attacked by a shark. Like, like that's supposed to make me feel better, right? And so I replied to him, this is what I sent him. I, I told him, I said, uh, I said, while that may be true on land, I think the odds may be shifted heavily in the shark's favor in open water. You know, I... Uh, you know, I, I'm not afraid of sharks on land. I mean, if I saw one, you know what? It's kind of the opposite of the way I am with lions, you know? The water, no big deal. Lions are no big deal. But he, he sends me this like it's supposed to make me feel feel better. And the article that he sent, you know what? It may have been 100% true. may have been completely accurate. I don't know. But my fear was telling me that me in the water, that the shark would have a better, he would have better odds of winning the lottery than I would of having to get away from the shark in that open water. I mean, that's how fear works. It makes us think irrationally, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and I know, I know that sounds crazy, but that's just, that's just how it works. You know, it, it may sound like a silly example, but that's exactly the way that the people of Israel felt. 
You know, fear is a magnifier. and often makes things seem much larger than what they really are. You know, it sometimes allows our, we sometimes allow our perception to outweigh the reality of the situation. You know what I'm saying? And uh, that's exactly what we had uh, here in Numbers chapter 13. We see that 10 of the 12 spies, we, they, they, they led their fear. It, it, it allowed them to give an evil report of the land. It was the land that God had already promised them. But their fear caused them to bring forth an evil report and stirred up the people to the point where they didn't want to go. They wanted to go back to Egypt. You know, it's, it's interesting. Did you notice, as, as, we, as we kind of look through the, the, the book here, the chapter 13 of the book of Numbers, did you notice that how their story changed from verses 27 to 29? And then what it looked like here between the last few verses in 32, 33. Did you notice what they were saying? Initially, the land was, they kind of gave, they kind of gave, initially, it was kind of like, hey, I've got some good news, I've got some bad news. The good news is, is that, yeah, the land does flow with milk and honey. It's a great land. But the people that are there, they look pretty strong. Then, in the later verses, after... Caleb offers his rebuttal and says, hey, he said, we just need to go and take care of this now. God's already promised us this land. We just need to go and do it. We're able to overcome. And we see that they came back with a totally different response. Suddenly, the land that was flowing with milk and honey, suddenly it was a land that eateth up the inhabitants. And the people, they were, though they were strong, suddenly all of the people that they saw there, every one of them, was a man of great stature, or there were giants. See how they got kind of twisted? That's what fear does to us. That's exactly what fear does to us. And they allowed their perception to outweigh the reality of their encounter. That's exactly what fear does. You know, taking the land may not have come without its challenges if they were doing that in their own power. But the fact is, the God that had provided for them, the God that had sustained them all through this journey in the wilderness, that God was right there with them. And he had already promised them the land. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing how, how much fear can hold us back. And, you know, you may be sitting there thinking, well, that's a cool story, bro, but how does that apply to me? Well, I'm going to throw that question back out at you. What's holding you back? Are you allowing your fear to hold you back from what it is that God wants you to do? Is there a next step in your Christian life that God wants you to take? And you're saying right now, you're saying, oh, Jeff, you don't understand. I can't do that. I can't do that. Can I just say that that's exactly what the devil wants you to believe? You know, one thing that I know about the devil is that he is, he is really good at presenting obstacles to the willing, but he will provide excuses to the unsure all the time, all day, every day. And this is probably a bad time uh, to mention this to you, but I've already alluded to it. I have been terrified of public speaking my entire life. My entire life. I mean, in all honesty... I, I remember 
Not being able to stand in front of, at my high school graduation, I could not stand in front of the crowd and, del- and deliver an address because I was so terrified, so struck with fear that I couldn't do it. They had to find somebody else to do that. That's how bad it was. And you can ask my wife. That's the honest God and the truth, isn't it? I, I couldn't do it. And you might be thinking, then why are you standing up there? Why are you doing this today? Oh, that's simple. Pastor loves to torture me. That's why I'm standing up here today. No, that's not true. No, it's because I got to the point in my life where I realized that the God that I serve is bigger than the doubts that I have. He's bigger than the fears that I have. And you know what? I just got to the point where I realized that it's perfectly okay for me to be a little uncomfortable as long as the he can be glorified. It's okay. It's okay to be nervous. It's okay to be afraid. But you know, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5, 7, the Bible says, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Can, you know, can I rephrase that for you just a little bit? I'm, I'm, not, we're not, I'm not trying to take scripture out of context. I'm not trying to twist the words. But I just want to rephrase this for you for just, just a second here. If you are not casting your cares, your doubts, your fears on God, you're not giving him the opportunity to prove how much he cares for you. That's what that verse is saying. That's what it's saying. You know, the children of Israel, they neglected to see that. And as a result, they missed the opportunity to claim God's promise for their life. And that's not what God wants for us. He's, it's not what he wants for us individually. It's not what he wants for us collectively as a church. God wants to deliver on every promise that he makes and oftentimes, it's us that hold him back. How crazy is that? You know, I, I'm just going to ask you, what's holding you back? What's holding you back from church membership? What's holding you back from discipleship? What's holding you back from taking place or taking part in a ministry that we have here at the church? What's holding you back? I don't know. It may not be anything that I mentioned here today. It may not be... Uh, your complacency. It may not be some outside influence. It may not be a fear. I don't know what it is. That's between you and God. But what's holding you back? We need to be willing to take that next step, overcome any obstacle, because God is with us, just like he was with the children of Israel, and they neglected to see the obvious. You know, I know I've been primarily speaking to Christians today, but if you're here today, and you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, you've never asked Him to forgive you of your sins, what is holding you back? What is it that's holding you back? You can make today the day that you know for sure that you are going to heaven, that you are going to spend eternity with Christ in heaven. What's holding you back from that? Let me just tell you something. God's love is the most expensive gift that you will ever receive for free. He sent his son to die for you, to die for your sin. He died in our place. What's holding you back from receiving that gift today? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. We allow all of these things to hold us back from what it is that God has planned for our lives, from claiming promises. Why? Why? Ask yourself that question, what's holding you back? Let's all go ahead and stand. We are, we are going to sing a verse of invitation.
And I'm just going to make this offering to you. If you need to do business with God, no matter what it is, maybe you just maybe you just need to get some things right. Maybe you need to come forward and get saved. Maybe you need to ask Christ for forgiveness. Ask him into your heart so that you can know for sure that you're going to heaven. We have people here who will show you privately. We're not going to embarrass anybody today. But if you're willing, the altars are open.